From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7. For more information about this episode and our guest, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Welcome back to The Podvocate. I'm Matt Doran, and today we return to our discussion of the upcoming Supreme Court case, BLV Mahanoy Area School District. If you joined us for our first discussion, you'll recall BL, a high school girl, sent a message over Snapchat to 250 of her classmates that said, F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything. Her cheerleading coaches learned of the snap and suspended BL from cheerleading for a year. BL sued in federal court, saying her free speech rights were violated and that the school had no right to discipline her for speech she made on a Saturday off campus. BL won at the district court and appellate court. The Supreme Court will hear oral argument on April 28th. In the last episode, we heard from school law expert, Professor Kathleen Herzman, who discussed the Supreme Court's precedential cases on school's authority to discipline student speech. The most noteworthy case we discussed was Tinker, which said students' speech is protected when it does not, or in the reasonable view, view of school officials will not, cause material and substantial disruption at school or invade the rights of others. Today, I'm joined by two guests, each of whom has been following the case from its inception and have written amicus briefs to the Supreme Court. My first guest is Francisco Negron, Chief Legal Counsel of the National School Board Association. Francisco directs the NSBA's nationally recognized legal advocacy, legal advocacy program, which files more amicus briefs in the Supreme Court and in federal and state appellate courts across the country each year than all national education associations combined. He also leads the 3,200-member Council of School Attorneys, the national network of lawyers representing K-12 public schools. Francisco is the chief author of the amicus brief, arguing in favor of the school district's right to discipline BL for her conduct. Francisco, welcome to The Podvocate. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So uh, we'll dive right in. Questions presented aside, you know, as far as what's uh, actually listed on the docket for the Supreme Court, what do you see as the main issue driving this case? What's at stake here? So I think what's at stake is the fact that the Third Circuit's decision is, I think, an outlier. It has uh, implications for how schools will be able to regulate student speech, if at all, outside the confines of the school setting. And what's, I think, the most important thing about the case is that we're dealing with a case that is one of first impression because it deals with social media, the ubiquity of social media, uh, and how students use it as a, a mode of communication and what that potential impact might be on the school setting. So it's really a modern version of Tinker in some respects. Um, and uh, the trilogy, or maybe the, the series of four cases, if you throw in more, that have led to, you know, this body of work um, that schools rely on uh, to, to, you know, to carry out their mission. So that's, I think, the most important thing or the most significant piece is um, to what extent is, is Tinker now going to be modernized or applicable uh, in this world of virtual reality in which we all live? Thank you. Do you think that Tinker has to be updated? Or do you think that the way it is just simply need, the way it currently uh, exists just kind of needs to be rethought of and reframed, but not necessarily upended? 
Well, what we've said to the court and, and what I believe is that that there is enough within the Tinker framework uh, to allow uh, the court to apply it in this case. And that's because um, at its heart, what Tinker was about is trying to figure out um, the extent of the courts, uh, of the school's ability to continue its education mission. And, and, and what the court said in Tinker, right? And you mentioned this at the outset was, this concept of, is it impacting the school setting? What are the indicators that are materially and substantially disrupting? So is, is that a reality? Um, but then also the second part that has to do with, you know, invading or impinging on the rights of others. Um, those two those two pieces are still very much alive in the way that schools interact with students around, around speech. Um, and I think there's still room, uh, particularly because what we're talking about here is the application of speech through social media. We know that that's a reality for young people. More and more student speech happens that way in ways that weren't even contemplated under Tinker. Uh, and so it's important, I think, for the court to take Tinker now and say, with this way in which speech happens, how does, how does Tinker relate to that? And we think it does. There's the possibility, of course, for invading the rights of others. There's also the possibility um, that uh, speech could lead to material and substantial disruption. So we think that the framework is there. It's just a recognition and a statement, and which is what we're asking for the court, clarity on you know, exactly how that would apply. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that uh, clarification. And I'm glad you, you brought the um, you know, invading the rights of others part up because in her opposition brief uh, or op uh, opposition to the petition for cert, uh, BL argues, quote, this snap featured no harassing, intimidating, or threatening speech. BL's speech did not mention, much less target the school or any individuals associated with it, nor was it directed at the school with the purpose of causing disruption. And it did not take place at a, on a school-sponsored form or carry the school's imprimatur. This passage is essentially saying that BL's speech falls within the definition of off-campus and further didn't threaten or harass anyone. And then at the district court level at trial, the cheerleading coaches who disciplined BL admitted that they did not believe that uh, BL snap would cause a material and substantial disruption, uh, and in fact that it didn't. And you know the Tinker Court held schools are permitted to discipline student speech that will material disrupt or invade the rights of others. So under these circumstances, made a speech made off campus on a Saturday, non-threatening and admittedly non-disruptive. Uh, you know, I, I can certainly empathize with the precariousness of the situation in the abstract, but when the particular facts of this of this case, how can Tinker be applied in such a way to uphold the discipline? Yeah, I think that there are some perhaps factual challenges here that you've identified. What what we're saying to the court is that it's the application of Tinker here that needs to take into consideration how this case is gonna be interpreted across the country, right? Notwithstanding the particular facts of this case. Um, and sort of, so let's sort of unpack um, the pieces that you mentioned. The first one was that this didn't happen on campus, that um, the communication was actually made elsewhere. Um, so let's assume for a minute that the communications that the student said, or the, the speech that the student engaged in um, had happened during practice. Uh, during rehearsals for cheerleading. 
there'd be no question that the school would have the ability to regulate that. Uh, why? First, because it was inappropriate speech. Um, and, and secondly, because it's contrary to the mission of what the school is trying to achieve with its extracurricular activities. Keep in mind that that sports are, you know, first of all, they're voluntary. So they're, they're something that, that is a privilege for students to participate in. And in this case, you know, there was, you know, a pledge that students had to sign about the kinds of behavior in which they engaged, including, you know, making inappropriate comments on social media. Part of that is because I think what schools are trying to do um, with a lot of extracurricular activities beyond the natural athletics that they're teaching is they're teaching things like teamwork, social engagement, appropriateness, um, you know, ways of relating to your peers, um, cohesion, all of the sort of, you know, perhaps softer social uh, values that are important in, in a team sport. And so, um, other than it being disruptive, it's also contrary to the, that basic educational mission. Um, so let's then take it, you know, out of out of the actual physical school setting. So what would that be in a world without social media? Well, that might be the playground, right? Uh, a student might exchange a communication and, and express, you know, whatever the student wanted to another student. Likely very unlikely that that the school, I mean, if at all, that anybody would think that the school would have authority to, to even speak to that communication or that speech. But the reality of social media today is that it's not really virtual reality as we used to know it, it's actual reality, is that when you publish something on social media through words, it actually reaches you know 250 people and it happens simultaneously. And then from there it goes viral and it leads all the way to parents reading what's being written. And so it's not, I think, realistic to say um, that this is speech that is only limited to a playground um, or even a virtual playground because it actually does have sort of its effect towards the school um, as we could see in this case, even though um, we saw you know, the, the quote that you just made or the, the paraphrase that you made about about the teacher. So the speech has that ability to live um, in a new space. That's not quite what we used to think in terms of the playground. For us, we're really concerned about the fact that taking you know, aside the point of disruptive element, right? That how it might not be disruptive immediately, as they said in this case. Well, there's another question for us, which is you know, invading or impinging on the rights of others. And we see that primarily in the area of bullying. We see that so much bullying or harassment potentially does happen. Um, it does have an impact, by the way. Bullying and harassment of students does have an impact on academic performance, let alone psychological performance. Tragedies have resulted from that. And so there is a linkage to the school system there. And so much of the bullying happens now because of the ubiquity of social media, you know, through those kinds of online communications. Um, there's an expectation from parents that, that schools address that. I think schools would be remiss if they didn't acknowledge that there was a negative impact from bullying and harassment. And so those are the kinds of recognitions that we want the court to take into consideration as it applies Tinker here. So uh, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much how I would unpack that for you. Sure, I, I appreciate that the thorough response. I guess the only concern that I might have is that 
the court could focus too narrowly on the facts and not provide, I mean, one would think that the Supreme Court would take this case in order to provide guidance, that they're looking at the circuit splits and seeing how different areas of the country are interpreting this and are taking the case so that there can be some uniformity. But is it possible, um, either based on the makeup of the court or just kind of your general impression that they might focus too heavily on the facts and you might be back where you, you know, started essentially? Well, it, it could be that they focus on the facts. I think actually what the court's going to be more concerned about, and by the way, this is this is one space where um, it, the interesting sort of, to the extent that we identify conservatives and liberals on the court, this is sort of a, a of an interesting sort of um, combination of those two sides, right? Because both have this, perhaps for different reasons, or they're interested in the different applications of the First Amendment, um, but they both have concerns about potential overreach. And I think for the conservatives, if we're thinking about folks actually coming out of the Third Circuit, like Justice Alito, right? He's a great lover of the First Amendment, particularly because of what he believes is, you know, the overstepping of uh, government into religious speech. So big proponent of the free exercise clause and how the First Amendment is, um, you know, somehow affected by, you know, oversteps of government. You might look to some of, you know, the liberal justices who, on the other hand, just have a, a general sense that, you know, that the government can't overstep its grounds on political speech, for instance, right? So back to the, the tinker piece itself. So I think more than the facts of the case, um, the court is going to be looking in, at what is what are what are ways that we can uphold Tinker, um, understanding that that it's been around for you know so many decades. Um, how can we uphold it uh, to allow you know the kinds of educational deference that we've also respected in the past, um, but do it in a way that does not impinge on those First Amendment rights like religious speech or like political speech. In other words, we don't want schools to be either thought or religious control, right? And I think that's the narrow space in which the court has to render its decision. Um, what we're saying to the court is that there's a very practical need for this kind of clarity, right? That it's time for the court to understand that there is um, a connection between communications and social media, the ubiquity of the communications, um, the impact of it, the potential also for bullying and harassment uh, that happens. And so that the court has to somehow account for that um, because it's having a very real impact. So we're not looking for overstepping. We're not looking to curtail um, religious communications, but at the end of the day, the court has recognized and has actually exercised judicial deference uh, around schools, understanding that schools, particularly when we're talking about children here, um, who have different levels of development than adults, right? That there's a, a, a different role. It has a, the, the school is a, is a unique, has its own unique characteristics that are separate from sort of the adult world in which the rest of us live. And in order to make sure that that educational mission continues, they've got to sort of find a place for us. Otherwise, these, these cases will continue to happen 
Um, and if the Third Circuit's decision stays out there the way that it is, um, we'll see more and more litigation against school districts. Um, and, you know, that's an unnecessary distraction. It's an unnecessary expense. And I think the limited ability for schools to address what can sometimes be very real legitimate concerns about the well-being of students. And um, I appreciate you mentioning also the the extra educational factors that come into play when dealing with an extracurricular activity. Uh, in, in Frazier, uh, which our listeners remember from our previous episode, the Supreme Court said a school can punish students for quote, offensively lewd, obscene, indecent, and vulgar speech uh, without finding that a substantial disruption would occur as Tinker requires. So I'm, I'm wondering if rather than look to whether Tinker should apply to off-campus or whether the speech invaded the rights of students, do you think uh, a different possible path forward would be the Supreme Court um, looking more narrowly to apply Frazier to off-campus speech if the discipline relates to extracurriculars only? Well, I, I think that that could be a possibility. You know, in the Morris case, that sort of, I see in a way as an extension of Frazier. I mean, that was the, 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 the bong hits for Jesus case. And, you know, I think nobody understood, you know, what bong hits for Jesus really understood we saw the court sort of grappling with that is that you know simply some sort of silly adolescent speech right is it is it offensive is it is it um, patently offensive i mean what exactly is it and then the whole conversation of whether it was you know on campus or not campus school activity not school activity I and mean, i think there is the possibility that the court look to that um I think for us, though, we chose really to focus not so much on Fraser, but on what we think is the greatest reality. So I think I think schools are less concerned with off-campus speech that is offensive or vulgar, right? We understand that that's that's not quite the concern of school districts, you know, unless there's some sort of impact to to the school setting. Really. What schools, I think, are concerned about are the instances of, of harassment that could arise um, from inappropriate expressions by a student. And, and that more clearly falls within Tinker than it does under Fraser, right? So the impinging on the rights of others, is that what harassment does? Uh, so I think the better approach is that. We think that the Third Circuit's just you know, blatant expression that Tinker doesn't apply to off-campus uh, cases is something that we have to take straight on because we know that it does. Uh, and that's something that would be really a sad day if, if the court agreed with at least that component of the Third Circuit. One of the other reasons why we, we thought it was important to weigh in on this case. I, I guess what I, I'm concerned with is that if the Supreme Court were to distill its rationales from Frazier and Morse, that, that BL appears likely to prevail because the Morse court said had Frazier, and again, this is the Morse court talking, had Frazier delivered the same speech in a public forum outside the school context, it would have been protected. And so that's where I wonder if this is where the distinction between suspension from an extracurricular activity and suspension from the school and the classroom is a critical and necessary distinction. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I would wonder, though, um, where, where would that case 
leave. Uh, see, the problem with just going with Morris and Fraser, uh, aside from what you just mentioned, which is the whole out of campus um, place, is the question of how are extracurricular activities different from the classroom, right? The academic setting in and of itself. And for us, there's a distinction when, when a student um, signs up for some sort of educational program that's not mandatory, um, and they agree to a certain set of criteria as a privilege of participating in that. And, and I know the ACLU would disagree with us uh, on, on this issue, because they would say you can't you know, waive a constitutional right. But I think it does lend sort of some greater support to the fact that the school here has made clear what its educational purpose or its educational mission is. And the student has signed on to that, such that it's similar to being in class. Now, again, um, outside of school, today, the world in which we live, um, there are many ways that students continue to speak outside of school that have an immediate impact. And you know, the arm that the school uses to reach out is the tinker. Cases have said that, um, that tinker does apply to off-campus speech. A variety of other courts have disagreed with the Third Circuit when it's disruptive to what's happening at the school setting, um, but also when it you know, influences negatively impacts on the rights of others. And again, just to, to bear off the point, of, I think the, the greatest concern here is the one over harassment and the ability to address what can affect not only an academic uh, question for students in the classroom, um, but just their their well being. Remember, too, it's interesting. Even though you know Morris did make this distinction between on and off campus, um, interestingly, a large part of Morris was it reminds me of the piece written by Justice Alito here um, that said this only has to do with drugs, right? But the whole turn about this was because the message was ultimately seen as a, a message promoting drugs, regardless of what anybody thought that it meant. And that that presented a serious and palpable danger. So there's an argument to be made. I mean, people have disagreed. I actually wrote a, um, a, a law review article on this. And, you know, some folks have disagreed about what that means, whether that's sort of an expansion into, you know, this other area where uh, the Supreme Court was saying there could be regulation of speech, which has to do with, you know, student welfare. Um, and I think that meshes nicely with the concept of trying, attempting to, you know, intervene or protect in the area of bullying and harassment. Although, as you point out, it still leaves out the question of the actual physical location. So in, in referring to the risks of free speech, the Tinker Court wrote, our constitution says we must take this risk. And our history says that it is this sort of hazardous freedom, this kind of openness, that is the basis of our national strength and of the independence and vigor of Americans who grow up and live in this relatively permissive, often disputatious society. What do you see as the greater risk if schools cannot discipline uh, off-campus and online speech? So first I'll say that um, we, you know, 100% agree with the Supreme Court in, in Tinker. And of course, it's important to know that, that the Tinker case was about pure political speech, right? 
So it's very clear that when we're talking about speech that is political in nature, right? Um, even religious in nature, you know, to Justice Alito's concerns, that that's going to receive the highest level of scrutiny. Um, and that that's what we're talking about uh, guarding from. That's the concern where we don't want schools limiting the kind of political speech, you know, absent some sort of disruption, right? So we can't simply assume, I mean, this is important to understand for your listeners, it, schools just simply cannot assume that political or religious speech is going to be um, somehow disruptive to the school environment, right? We have to have actual, um, what the court called, you know, material indicia of disruption, right? So indicators, how do you know that this is going to happen? What indicators do you have? Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge that, that we agree with that. And that's not what this, this case is about. This is not about political speech. It's about disruptive speech, um, speech that if it happened physically within the confines of either school property or school activity, it there would be no question about whether it's regulated. So it's just this one step removed um, into this sphere where students are communicating now. Um, and it's about recognizing that that speech doesn't happen in a physical playground as it did 50 years ago, completely isolated from a school setting, but that it has the potential for impact. Um, not with notwithstanding whether in this case that was what happened and whether you know um, the admissions that were made you know have what they mean to this particular case but because we know of the prevalence of things like harassment and bullying which is our primary concern here which we understand has an impact on the school setting which we understand has an impact on the psychosocial development of children um, that and that, by the way, there's an expectation, you know, in under many state legal frameworks um, and an expectation from parents that schools address this, um, that we have a need to regulate that speech. Um, and and that's, that's, I think, the difference between the speech that was happening in Tinker and the speech that's happening now. I don't think that schools are interested in policing the Internet. Schools certainly don't have the time or the resources to do that. But I also don't think that school districts um, can stick their heads in, in the sand. Um, when uh, there are real concerns over the well-being of, of the children in their care. Well, on that topic, uh, in your amicus brief uh, to the Supreme Court, you wrote, quote, if schools cannot appropriately discipline harassing and disruptive students, they will be unable to guarantee safe learning environments or proper and equitable educational opportunities for students in general, including those who already face marginalization due to their disability, race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. If the Supreme Court affirms the Third Circuit's reasoning in BL, can you please give an example of how a school would be unable to reprimand a student who was harassing or intimidating a marginalized student? Right, so I think that's a terrific question. Take, for example, what we've been talking about in terms of, of bullying and harassment. Um, let, let's say that um, instead of directing their ire at a school program, like cheerleading, right, or whatever the school activity is, it's, it's very personalized. The communication is very personalized. 
Johnny or Susie writes um, the the person in in a social media space uses chat Snapchat for instance or any others to say Johnny or Susie is this they're you know and you can imagine the parade of horribles I and mean, children can be very cruel um, it has much of it has to do with just immaturity um, you know where they are in their psychosocial development there's a time of lots of of, of conflicting emotions happening, all of that well understood. At the same time, um, words can be used as weapons rather than as ideas, right? And so to the extent that one student weaponizes students, uh, uh, words, weaponizes words to intimidate a student, to call out behavior, to promote sexual innuendo, all of the things that to isolate students, all of the parade of horribles that we might see, um, you know, and then publishes that, right? There's an immediate impact, right? There, it goes, it can go viral, but even if it doesn't go viral, it can be published to many people at once. It can have an immediate um, impact. And, and even though the person that you've targeted may not be the initial reader, as these things happen, word gets around. And so there's this, this created, this intimidating uh, scenario that's created. It could lead to tragedies. We've seen that in the past where students have committed self-harm, God forbid, suicide, depending on the level of the intimidation and harassment. Um, and of course, it impacts their ability to learn because students who don't feel safe, um, who, feel marginalized, intimidated, harassed, aren't going to be, you know, at their best, particularly if they're seeing the commentator or the maker of the speech within the school setting, in their classrooms, in the hallways. So what would a school be able to do about that? Would, would a school be unable to place kids in different classrooms? Uh, would they be able to move kids off of a bus, for instance, to create distancing? Um, and not to say that these are the ideal solutions to any of this. There's just some examples of how a school might deal with it. A school might use it as a teachable moment. They might call in the offending student and say, this is wrong. Let's use a restorative justice-like pro program to talk about this. Um, but there would be some action that they could take to try to mitigate the harm done to the student um, that's victimized. At the same time, perhaps trying to assist with the, you know, with with the perpetrator, if if that's one of their choices. But if that doesn't exist because of what the court said, the Third Circuit said in this case, then the options tend to go away, right? Particularly if there's any discipline involved, um, and that would be, I think, not a good place for for schools and for students. And again, in the same vein of question, if, if the Supreme Court were to adopt the Third Circuit's rationale, do you think that the Supreme Court will address the conflicting state laws? You know, particularly I'm thinking of New Jersey, which is in the Third Circuit, which has a compulsory obligation upon uh, school administrators to take action when they see uh, or, or have knowledge of um, online bullying and harassment going on between students, you know, supremacy clause aside, do you think that the court will address that? Well, um, I think they'll probably take note of it. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see what they do with it. 
I don't know what what they're going to do. I, I think I would probably be able to give you a better um, a better guess after we heard the oral argument on the 28th uh, of, of where their particular interests lie in going with this. But I appreciate the nature of the question because as you mentioned, and as I mentioned above, there is um, a framework, not just New Jersey, but other places across the United States, Massachusetts is another one, right? California, that have laws that are very specific um, about the requirements for students, for schools to engage in, you know, actions to protect students, to report certain kinds of behavior. Um, and depending on how the court rules, uh, some of those may need to be revisited. You know, as you mentioned, social media and its power to connect students in school is not going away. If Francisco and Negron were running the rules, what do you think the rules should be? What online and off-campus speech should schools have the power to discipline? Yeah, I think that Tinker is a great place to start, right? Um, I don't think Tinker, I think Tinker is one of those decisions that hasn't been you know, used as fully as it could be. Because when we talk about impacting the school setting, most of the time, when, when most lawyers talk about Tinker, they talked about behavior that impacts, adversely impacts the school setting, right? Just, that's disruptive to the school setting. We tend to forget that, you know, impinging on the rights of others, the second prong of Tinker, which is, um, I think, frankly, in many ways, really um, sort of provided some extreme foresight by the court, right? Uh, 50 decades ago, um, even if they weren't thinking about, you know, even the possibility of such a thing as social media and the way that we communicate it, it in our opinion, it, it sort of seems to be like they had that foresight because it lends itself to that. That's the kind of scenario that, um, that one could envision because we know that social media does and can have a negative impact on the rights of others, their ability to learn, um, their ability to feel safe, right? Um, depending on the nature of the harassment or the intimidation. So I wouldn't rewrite Tinker. I would simply, I mean, to answer your question, I would simply say that recognize that in the world in which we live, uh, communication uh, is more than static. It doesn't just happen within a single physical space, right? Um, the village green now is not what it used to be, neither is the theater, um, nor frankly, you know, the schoolhouse gate. The schoolhouse gate mentioned in Tinker um, is now virtual and the court needs to recognize that. So um, with care, right? We don't want schools regulating what is, is definitely not within their sphere to regulate. Um, but the rash of student harm, suicides, uh, the rash of bullying that we see that has you know, proliferated as a result of um, the ubiquity of social media, the ability to um, engage in its immediacy, to publish to a large um, number of students, and by the way, at times to remain anonymous, um, is I think something that it's time for us to, to grapple with at least for the court. And when I say us, I mean the court, because schools have been dealing with it 
for you know a number of years now. Um, so that's that's I think what I would do. And I want to shift to the arguments that you, uh, are likely to be made. In 2019, Chief Justice Roberts described himself as, quote, probably the most aggressive defender of the First Amendment on the court now. Uh, What do you see as the school district's um, case that they're going to target to Chief Justice Roberts' self-described staunch defense of First Amendment rights to sway his uh, pivotal vote uh, in the school's direction? Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question. You know that Chief Justice Roberts is himself a former um, school district attorney. Um, so I think that um, the Chief Justice brings with him already uh, an understanding of how schools operate, um, having himself participated in defending them uh, and in helping them craft policies that make sense and are within the law. So he very well may be sort of the architect of the opinion of it. I think whoever ends up writing this speech, I mean, if it's this speech, this opinion, whoever ends up writing the opinion um, is gonna have to cobble together the concerns of both the conservatives and the liberals, as I mentioned at the outset. Um, So what we've seen in the past from Chief, Chief Justice Roberts, including in a variety of opinions like Trinity Lutheran and others is that he has a very measured way of drafting his opinions when it comes to schools. That it, and, and in, in Trinity Lutheran, for instance, you'll, you know, that was the case that involved um, playgrounds and whether a school, a religious school could get, you know, state, a state grant, um, Missouri, to repave their playground, just like any other school. And Chief Justice has continuously, same thing in Espinoza, right? Uh, has continuously articulated uh, around religious speech, and I'm going somewhere with it, so just hear me out for a minute, um, has continually articulated that it's not status, the status of being religious that um, that is, that can be regulated. You can't impose a, con- a, con- a condition on the basis of status. It has to be on the basis of what is actually being done. Um, and to deny you know, funds um, on that basis, on the basis of status is unconstitutional. So I think he's always trying to find this, this very niche, narrowed, and he said in a footnote in that case, this is just about playgrounds. Um, so I think it's the same thing here. I think to the extent that the chief justice either writes the opinion, well, I guess, or, or sets it out, I think we're gonna feel um, if he has any influence in this one, uh, a very sort of measured approach, um, which might address things like, well, a school district is can legitimately reach out if it has, you know, indicators of harm, bullying, harassment, right? I think they're going to carve something narrowly that way, or at least that's what we would hope that they would do, um, rather than simply agree with the Third Circuit um, or say that, you know, the Third Circuit uh, was wrong altogether. Because what we need is clarity. How far can school districts go? It wouldn't do, for instance, to just leave it up to schools. I think there's an opportunity for the court, and that's what we were trying to get across. There's an opportunity here for the court to sort of cabin, you know, what those parameters are. Because schools don't want to be in a position of just regulating 
willy-nilly, not that they do, but if that's the case, um, if, if there's not some sort of cabining or some sort of more defined guardrails, particularly around social media and you know, virtual speech, then we're right back where we started before you know, the BL case. And what's, what's the use in that? So there's, there's a utility to the course coming out and giving us that clarity, um, which is why we asked them to take the case. Uh, and, and we think we're hopeful that they'll do that. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't do to say, yeah, you, it, and of course, if they agreed wholesale with the Third Circuit, that, that, that wouldn't be good either. Um, so we're hoping that a decision against what the Third Circuit said or against the student in this case would somehow have some sort of parameters in it. That would be an opinion that we could see coming from the Chief Justice just because of his measured approach in, in previous cases, uh, particularly around religious speech. Chief Justice, as well as some of the other justices, uh, based on the current makeup of the court, how do you see it coming down? When I spoke with uh, Professor Kathleen Herzman uh, previously, she had said, had this case come up uh, 10 years ago, it would have been a very different situation. Uh, and she, <laughs> without speaking too disparagingly, um, talked about Morse and how it was a little bit of a, a dated perspective that came into that decision. And uh, she and I were remarking how Justice Barrett has young children, Justice Gorsuch has uh, younger kids, um, Justice Kavanaugh has younger kids. And so um, she believed that this slightly younger court would have a more practical understanding of the implications of this case and the technology that is driving um, you know, the facts of this case. So based on this current makeup of the court, how do you see the, the court coming down? That's interesting. Well, one would hope that that, that is definitely the case. I, I think there's some truth to what the professor said. Um, we, did, we did drop um, a line or two in, in our brief um, speaking to, you know, potentially the, the experiences of, of some of the justices, N not only do, do they have younger children, but, you know, a justice like Justice Kavanaugh, right, is, uh, um, has girls who are, you know, uh, basketball athletes. I think he's a, a basketball coach for um, his girls' teams and um, certainly no stranger to the kinds of communications that adolescents engage in. And no stranger, by the way, to the way the, the kinds of um, of whether they're codes or requirements uh, that are necessary to to coach young people in athletic activities and what that entails and the challenges around that. So I think there's there's truth to that, not only to you know to the to the composition of the court that way, but also to the particular activities in which they engage with their children around athletics. They're, you know, they're parents with kids in schools, sure. Well, it'll be an interesting opinion and I'm looking forward to the oral argument. Uh, Francisco Negron, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your perspective. It was my pleasure, thank you very much. That's all from us here at The Podicate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guest. 
The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communication at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leanne Jossend, and Lenny Reiner. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.